This is an audio dispatch from No Borders Media. Earlier today, the Supreme Court of India issued a unanimous decision overturning Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code, which criminalized gay sex. The decision is an historic and meaningful victory for the mobilizing and organizing queer communities in the Indian state. For perspective on this important decision and to look ahead, No Borders Media spoke with Pony Arasu, a Tamil queer feminist activist and a member of Voices Against 377. She speaks about both the legal and grassroots organizing struggles of the past decade, the sectors of Indian society who oppose the decriminalization of gay sex, as well as the generations of queer people who fought against Section 377 in the past. This interview was recorded on September 6, 2018 by Juggy Singh for No Borders Media. I'm speaking with Pony Arasu. Pony is a Tamil queer feminist activist. She is a member of Voices Against 377. Pony, welcome to No Borders Media. Hi, Jaggi. Thank you so much. Pony, we've learned uh, within the last day that the Indian Supreme Court, in a unanimous decision by five panelists on that court, have essentially decriminalized gay sex. When I mentioned that you're a member of Voices Against 377, 377 is a section of the Indian Penal Code, which dates back to mm-hmm. colonial times, which essentially criminalized gay sex. So can you just give some basic background into what Section 377 is and the significance, and it's highly significant, the significance of the Supreme Court decision that came down yesterday? Mm-hmm. Um, so Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code is a colonial-era law. Um, but it stayed on the books within the Indian Penal Code after independence, um, uh, not unlike many other such laws. Much of our codes uh, remain as they were or slightly changed in the post-independence context. Um, technically, the wording of the law is that it criminalizes carnal intercourse against the order of nature. Um, so obviously, as you can tell from the language, it's from another time. And the definitions of um, what exactly it meant is not clarified within the law, never was. Um, But the way by which the law has always been read and used um, during colonial times and after is that it has criminalized um, homosexual sex. Um, So, and it has been read as criminalizing any sexual activity that is non-procreative. And so, the significance of this judgment uh, is manifold. Um, I think I'd like to start with the fact that it has come after 18 years of direct struggle against this particular law, but it has also come from a struggle that goes way beyond the 18 years that many of us were involved in this um, to a time when um, queers um, in India in different parts, uh, mostly the bigger cities, were organizing themselves into small groups um, and making their presence felt in any way that they can, or at least in the bare minimum, supporting one another to get through life in uh, a context where you are under enormous oppression from uh, patriarchy and heteronormativity, um, along and along with along with patriarchy and heteronormativity in the Indian context means oppressions of caste, class. Uh, religion, etc. Right, goes without saying. So I think the main significance of that is that of the judgment is that it is very much one that has been won by a movement that has been going on for many, many, many decades. 
And I would say I am about a third generation um, queer rights activist. Um, and with the legal battle alone, we may have been there from the beginning. But in terms of queer organizing, um, there were those who went before us. Um, the second sort of significance of the law, um, of the judgment uh, that we've got today, yesterday, is that um, it doesn't just simply decriminalize homosexual sex by um, reading down uh, Section 377 to decriminalize adult consensual same-sex sexual activity in private. Um, what the judgment actually does is it broadens the scope of constitutional rights and this idea of constitutional morality that this movement and the struggle has played a very significant part in putting right middle in the center of legal battles around rights in the Indian context. Um, and it has made space for arguing that all citizens of a country um, have the right to freedom, to life, to dignity, um, to uh, reputation, uh, socioeconomic rights, um, political rights, um, and it, it basically insists that the way in which we view our society as it stands cannot be based on what may be called social morality, which often gets collapsed with majoritarian views, but we must keep social morality and thus by extension majoritarian views in check by applying the logic of constitutional morality to them and to make sure that we use constitutional morality to protect the rights of those who are marginalized in society. Um, so I think for me, um, as a queer person from the country, of course, it's huge. I don't think many of us get to be part of and witness and just be present for um, these kind of moments, which has the potential to change the lives of so many people. And to feel myself personally like I can breathe free again and do the real work of bringing much deeper fundamental change without having the sword of a criminalizing law hanging over my head. Um, that, of course, is I have no words that can capture the significance of that. Um, but at the same time, I think we must not forget that the strength of this judgment is that it broadens the scope of these rights for everyone. Um, and not just for any one particular community or identity. And um, I'm extremely um, proud and excited about the potential of that. Pony, you've, you've importantly highlighted the grassroots mobilizing. There's a saying in, in these situations when, when courts rule on people's rights. Uh, uh, it's, not the court, it's not that the courts give people rights, it's that courts recognize rights that people have fought for uh, day to day. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. I do want to stay with this ruling for a moment because it's an interesting microcosm of, of the twists and turns that go along with uh, fighting on this issue. You yourself have been involved as a petitioner in this case, so talk about that and talk about the ups and downs of this case which has wound its way through the Indian court system for more than a decade. Mm -hmm. And, it, and it, it, it did result in, um, at, one, at one point, one of the courts overturning a decision that recognized that Section 377 should be overturned. Uh, so talk about uh, the, that legal aspect of things before we get more mm -hmm. into the grassroots stuff later in the interview. Yeah, I think in terms of, I mean, I think my own involvement in the case and the different capacities in which I was involved 
is itself a microcosm of the approach that the movement took to legal change. Um, so I was involved as one of the lawyers who was doing uh, the drafting, especially um, it, when the case was in the high court. Um, I was also involved, my mother, technically my mother was involved as one of the parents who signed on to the petition uh, saying that her child is oppressed by this law. Um, um, I was also involved um, with, um, and all of this with a large group of people from across the country. Um, I was also involved along with various others in consistently creating public opinion around the law, but also the issue on the whole. Um, so much so that even before this judgment came, we saw changes um, in living rooms, um, at least in some parts of the country, um, often perhaps in urban areas, but I think that's also a generalization we aren't able to fully make. I think some of the change has even been brought about in smaller places. Um, so, and at the same time, many of us who are doing all this work also wrote um, academic and activist uh, literature um, and the boundary between that is very blurred in the Indian context um, of having a critical eye on the very process that we ourselves were involved in, you know, so to keep the voice of self-criticism always and to think about the questions that we, do, we, won't, we shouldn't lose sight of, to not lose sight of the limits of the law, uh, to not confine ourselves only to the language of the law, even as we are fighting to change the language of the law. Um, so all this to say, um, in terms of the legal battle, there's always been an understanding in the movement that this law needs to go so that we can do the work of real change. Um, and so when, it, when we won the case in uh, the Delhi High Court on the 2nd of July 2009, um, we have a whole other generation of queer people who have come after that. We call them the post-2009 generation. I mean, I know it's only nine years, but the difference that it made was immense. There are queer younger people who are younger than me, uh, queer people in India who haven't had that experience that I myself had of being a 16-year-old and feeling the desire that I did and thinking that me and the person I felt the desire for were the only two people in the country and there was nobody else. Um, people who don't know this, don't know this fear that you have within you, who uh, don't have that same feeling of invisibilizing that we felt. Um, so the significance of the 2009 judgment um, has become more and more apparent as we saw this new generation of people coming up. And when we lost the case, um, I think in the exact sort of same way, we saw the strength of what we had built by then. Um, because we were able to mount a campaign where we said, no, going back. We have come this far and we're not going to step back. And the sort of idiosyncrasy of the judgment in the previous judgment in the Supreme Court, where basically we were told that our community is a minuscule minority, and I'm quoting from the judgment, minuscule minority within Indian society. The entire judgment was a mere few pages. Um, unheard of in, in court documents usually, and they just declared that this was a minuscule minority and it wasn't uh, an important enough violation of rights to read down Section 377. Um, and the response to that, both from community as well as uh, people within the media, a large majority of whom do support, um, support this, uh, this struggle, um, was 
to recognize how it was untrue. And when we heard that, we took on that battle as well within the realm of the law and proved to the Supreme, when we went back uh, to uh, challenge that decision, we proved to the Supreme Court that we weren't a minuscule minority and we flooded the court with more and more cases of um, rights violation that was happening to people within the community. Um, and we reiterated all of the arguments that we had made earlier in the Delhi High Court. And similarly, on the other side, they reiterated the arguments that they had made before, uh, that this was a small minority of people, that this was against Indian culture, um, that this has never been given a place within our cultural context, that giving these people the privilege, quote-unquote, of decriminalization would lead to the destruction of the institution of marriage and family. Uh, so they rehearsed those arguments again, and we made our arguments again and added to that a flooding of documents, submissions in court to prove that this was not a question just of minuscule minority, even as we argued that even if it was one person whose rights were being violated, constitutional moral morality tells us that we must change such a law. Um, so it's, as you can see, it's, a, lo it's uh, a lot of creativity within the legal system to be able to hold these contradictions, right, as we made uh, these arguments and spoke to the law in the language that it understands. Um, and I think that creativity has been documented to some extent, but I think we still have to do a lot more of that because I think everyone everywhere in the world has a lot to learn. And I think it is that creativity has that has given us not just this victory of a simple decriminalization, but a judgment that's actually stellar in how it addresses questions that affect everyone um, who is a citizen of the nation state of India, as well as anyone who may be connected to that place culturally in the diaspora and other places, to be able to make the argument that, um, you know, we are here and we are queer and we have the right to use the constitution that governs us to make this argument that uh, we deserve these rights um, and we deserve to live uh, with freedom and dignity um, and respect. Um, so I think, I think in terms, as, as far as a legal battle goes, uh, we constantly push the boundaries of uh, it not being a narrow one. We constantly push the boundaries of the arguments not being narrow. And that's why we today have a judgment that also isn't narrow. Um, there was enough pressure uh, within the legal realm, from media, from various sections of Indian society, that has made it possible for the judges to take up the space to put themselves within the annals of history, so to speak, um, in this way, rather than giving us just a simple decriminalization. Um, and I think that emerged from a very complex um, perspective towards uh, legal battles when it comes to the question of social justice in this context. So I think that uh, is the most important thing. Um, other than that, just the judgment itself um, in a very much more concrete way, uh, they have also given directives uh, to the Indian government to sort of take on the responsibility of disseminating the contents and spirit of this judgment uh, in different realms within the country. They have said literally that they need to have um, this talked about in national media um, constantly uh, in order to uh, get rid of social stigma, 
they have said that uh, people associated with government services uh, like the police, um, counseling, hospitals, etc., educational institutions have to be sensitized to the question of sexuality and queer sexuality. Uh, these are directives that have been uh, that have now been declared in the judgment. So we have it as a tool to now push the government to make sure that those things happen. Um, and at every level, from a local police station all the way up to parliament. Um, um, so I think that possibility of having very concrete directives where the government takes responsibility for deeper social change to whatever extent that it can, um, along with broader philosophical space being created, um, is, um, is, is, is an argument and a language that we have pushed for um, and we believed in and we articulated, did the work of articulating it uh, in multiple realms. And so um, as far as legal battles go, I think that this is the strength of this particular one. Pony, give us a sense of the grassroots side of things. You've, you've given a very detailed answer about the, the legal strategy and the legal follow-up and particularly how it was based on not limiting what you were asking for, but being very creative about enlarging that. But talk about the grassroots side. And, you know, for, for our listeners who don't know, the Indian state yeah. is an incredibly huge, diverse place with literally hundreds of cultures and subcultures. So obviously you can speak to um, a particular reality, but give us a sense of, of, of the day-to-day mm-hmm. grassroots organizing in queer communities mm-hmm. in India, in the Indian state, from where you're at. Yes. So just to give uh, context to what the, the different parts of the country that I do know, um, so I personally am from Chennai or Madras in Tamil Nadu in southern India, um, but I have lived and worked as an activist and as a lawyer um, and have been a student activist in the cities of Delhi and Bangalore as well. So I have a good sense of uh, things happening at the grassroots level in and around three different places, Delhi, Bangalore, and Madras. Um, or Chennai. So um, in all of these places, like I said before, um, especially in Delhi, but also to some extent in Bangalore, and also from what I know in Bombay, um, queer people were organizing themselves into small groups before the challenge to 377 started, before even 377 was recognized as a point of uh, struggle, so to speak. Um, so, for example, in Delhi, uh, there used to be this meeting uh, where they would have one red rose on one table in this sort of rundown, government-run cafe on top of a terrace in a big building in the middle of the city. And queers would know that the table where the red rose is is where the other queers are. And they met each other. And it was in that very cafe on those very same tables that Voices Against 377 was also envisioned and created. Um, similarly, when the movie Fire came out that people may know about, uh, it's an Indian film made by uh, Deepa Mehta who lives here in Toronto about two middle-class Indian women in Delhi who fall in love with and have sex with one another and what happens to them. When there was a right-wing Hindu fundamentalist um, um, uh, response against it, where they actually burnt a cinema hall in the middle of the city, um, feminist activists, some of whom were queer, formed this organization called Campaign for Lesbian Rights. 
um, and held up this placard, which is very famous, which said Indian and lesbian uh, in the late 1990s. And they came onto the streets and came out, so to speak, and talked about this and stood against the right-wing Hindu fundamentalist uh, argument that this doesn't belong in Indian culture, quote-unquote. Um, and similarly, there was a previous challenge to Section 377 itself. They lost, unfortunately, um, but that was an organization um, uh, called ABVA AIDS Bedva Virodi Andolan, which was formed to look into the issue of HIV and AIDS that was coming up in the country at that time. Um, and they filed a case uh, to decriminalize adult consensual same-sex sexual activity in private, making the argument that they are unable to address the question of HIV-AIDS and ensuring that people are safe because of this criminalization. Um, but although they lost, they, they are our uh, precursors in, a, in, this, in this battle. Um, so there are others, for example, who in Gujarat, uh, Maya Rao, uh, has written a book called Women in Lesbian, Lesbians in Unprivileged India, and she has been organizing and working with uh, working class, um, semi-urban and rural, queer and trans um, women and men in Gujarat. Um, similarly, an uh, organization called Labia in Bombay is a group of feminists that emerged out of the women's movement that works on queer issues but has constantly kept this voice alive that um, a queer feminist perspective is one that's about broader um, social justice. And so they are constantly working on issues to do, that are very present in India, for example, against caste-based violence, against Hindu right-wing fundamentalist violence, um, against corporate violence on communities by takeover of land so to set up factories, etc. In, uh, uh, in uh, Chennai, for example, um, a lot of the mobilization in Chennai is actually among uh, working class, transgender, Hijra, Aravani in summer communities. Um, and so these are folks who come often from working class backgrounds or who have left their natal homes because they've had to and they become part of the traditional Aravani community. It's a community that has existed for centuries in the country, um, and they have their own language and ritual practices and kin relations within that community. And a lot of the mobilization emerged from that. And they were affiliated to non-governmental organizations, and some of them were not. But queer spaces in Chennai are rife with that community. And that their organizing is also what led to the setting up of the first ever Transgender Welfare Board or the Aravani Welfare Board in Tamil Nadu before any of the other things have happened. Uh, similarly, in Bangalore, a lot of the organizing has been amongst working class trans men and lesbian women and trans women um, who have been fighting for their own rights, have formed groups to do so, um, but at the same time have also been deeply involved in uh, work against caste-based violence and to keep the attention on caste hegemony um, in, in the context of Karnataka, where Bangalore is. Um, so, and many of us in our capacities of whatever else we may do, whether we are teachers, uh, whether we are working on quote-unquote other issues, as it were, um, we have done the work of bringing into that a perspective that's queer feminist. Um, and even within the sort of uh, mainstay of queer activism that you see, even in Delhi, for instance, one of the early things we did was not only setting up uh, collaborations, so Voices Against 377 itself is not just a network of queer groups, 
but it's a network of queer groups, child rights groups, women's rights groups, HIV AIDS related groups. Um, <coughs> so um, it was always understood that this movement cannot be in isolation from others. And similarly, we set up we set up collaborations with the National Alliance of People's Movements, um, who whose members organize Pride with us every year. Uh, we have expressed our solidarity to the Masdur Kisan Shakti Sangatan, who are responsible for organizing in rural parts of Rajasthan and other places, and who brought in the Right to Information Act in India. We have constantly established our solidarity with the Narmada Bachao Andolan, the movement against the building of dams and displacement of people and various communities in the Narmada River area that goes across three, straight, three states in northern India. Um, so it's, it's a movement that's made up of uh, people who never really saw issues of queer rights in isolation. Um, and who uh, and that emerges from the nature of social movements themselves in India, where no movement really just consists of just the elite. Um, um, the women's movement doesn't. Um, no, none of the other struggles do. And so we come from that tradition. Um, and the second thing in terms of grassroots mobilization is that while hierarchies of caste, class, urban, rural, gender. Um, etc. exist within the queer movement as well. There have been numerous voices who have made sure that we don't lose sight of that. And we've constantly said it, we've constantly written about it, uh, we've talked about it in a tone that is uh, self-critical, self-aware, and um, creative as and when, uh, as and when possible. Um, because that's the reality of the kind of political understanding that we come from as queer people. So, um, I, I think it's hard in some ways to separate this legal victory from grassroots mobilization. I think in our case, I'm happy to say um, that the connection that sometimes doesn't get made with these things between the elite and the non-elite um, has been made. But having said all of this, in the last stages, just before this particular victory, is when we saw a lot of elite queer folks who actually went into the courtroom with individual petitions that were not grounded in movement-based organizing or collective decision-making. Um, they filed individual petitions for their own rights and their people who have class privilege, who have caste privilege, who have privileges of religion and culture, et cetera. Um, and those are indications of the debates that will come up, have already come up, but will become louder within the queer movement. So I think that it is true that there is a big group of us who have kept ourselves grounded in grassroots mobilization being key to um, radical social change. But at the same time, there is also queer folks who um, do not necessarily see uh, class, caste, uh, or even a gender perspective sometimes as they are asking for their rights as queer people. And so the future, we'll have to see what the future holds in terms of how the conversations across these differences happen, because so far criminality held us together. Um, and now it doesn't anymore. And so we must face uh, the debates and the differences amongst us, and we must see how we have those, uh, those conversations. Pony, uh, a struggle like this exposes both beautiful things, which you've partially described just now the beauty and the resilience of basically the queer community 
in the Indian state that has mobilized for decades and decades and decades, culminating in, in this decision, and there's much more to come. But it also clearly exposes a lot of ugliness, diverse ugliness, if I can say so, because you have a situation where members of a variety of religious communities, Hindu, Muslim, Christian, opposed uh, overturning or challenging uh, Section 377. You had uh, astrologers come out and say, you can't do this. Yep. You had um, uh, yoga people saying that they could cure homosexuality through yoga. Mm -hmm. So I'd like you to talk about who are the people who are opposing this? Who are the, who are, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot, but who are the significant ones that we should be concerned about? It's my understanding that mm -hmm. when this got to the Supreme Court, the center, that is the Indian government, decided to let the court just decide. So they didn't take a stance, which, which is interesting mm -hmm. to me. So explain that part of it and also explain who are, who are the sectors of society that we should be concerned mm -hmm. about that, were, that have power and that were opposing uh, a challenge to Section 377 and basically opposing the dignity and respect for fellow uh, citizens in the Indian state? Um, I think we can look at the people who were against us in court in sort of three broad categories. Um, one category is uh, the folks who were there to protect uh, their version of religion. And we often have this joke, and as the country has moved further and further into uh, becoming a Hindu fascist nation state, uh, we often joke about how we bring together all of these um, uh, ideas, fundamentalist ideas of religion uh, across faith. Um, <clears throat> and so we had, like you said, we had representatives of Hindu, Muslim, and Christian organizations in court against us. Um, and they, their arguments had a lot in common, um, and they all sort of relied on um, ideas of uh, sin um, and it being disallowed within the scriptures um, of their respective uh, religions. Um, and <clears throat> this um, is this for me is almost uh, the easier part of the struggle because in terms of what the what is allowed or not uh, within their version of religion and us challenging um, their version of any of their faiths with other versions of the same faith um, is something that has been an ongoing struggle uh, for various social movements um, in the country and again we borrow um, heavily from the history of the women's movement um, who have always come uh, in, have been at odds with uh, Hindu fundamentalists, Muslim fundamentalists, and Christian fundamentalist versions of those religions. Um, so um, that's the argument that they were making, and that fight is very well known to us um, because in some ways it's at the crux of um, a lot of political organizing in the country, uh, given, the, um, given the way in which Hindu fundamentalist um, hegemony has loomed large uh, over the country from independence onwards, um, we never quite um, managed the secularism that we claim with so much pride. And um, an, a, a Hindu understanding of the Indian nation state, I think, is at the very origins of the nation state itself. Um, and so for us as queers to say that um, we are, uh, that this version of them articulating our place within these religious um, 
within these religious uh, bodies, whether it's institutions or the individual practice of faith or all of this, um, it's a fight that we fight along with many others. Um, and we say that this, we refuse to accept that there can only be a singular version of these religions. And this land, especially India, but also the South Asian context in general and many other parts of the world, have been rife with so many different ideas of these faiths and that they've all had a history. Um, and we've placed that on record over and over again. Um, the other group I would consider are people who are, of course, profoundly influenced by this idea of religion, but at the same time also seem to feel this sort of personal paranoia of the breaking down of the dichotomy of gender, of what they understand to be the sexual act, um, of the institution of family, and of course, the all-powerful of marriage. Um, and so the arguments, um, I still remember one of the astrologers in court uh, in high court kept making this argument about vaginal irrigation and he kept talking about how uh, you, uh, without vaginal irrigation any sexual activity is, is criminal or illegal and these were the kind of sort of bizarre grasping for um, things that are almost an insult to the intelligence of everyone in the room pretty much in order to make the arguments that they wanted to make and over and over again to say that this will break down the institution of family and marriage because it will uh, no longer have reproduction at the center of romantic or sexual relationships. Um, and then the third sort of group, uh, and there were other uh, state bodies that were involved before, but by the time we got to the Supreme Court, um, it was just the Union of India. Um, and the thing is, in terms of why they refused to respond, um, in some ways, we wanted them to go against us so that we could use this as a way of uh, opposing, yet another way of opposing this government that we have strongly registered, registered our voices against over and over and over again, um, starting from, uh, with the BJP, starting from the demolition of Babri Masjid to the numerous riots that have happened in different parts of the country, culminating in the carnage of those of the Muslim faith in Gujarat, and the riots that continue, and now more recently, individual murders in the name of uh, those who either did eat or they thought they ate beef, um, or those who, who, those who choose to uh, fall in love and marry uh, across caste and religious lines. So we were hoping they would respond against us so that we could just take them on. But at the same time, we were also equally fearful that they may not respond against us and any semblance of support from this government is something that would put us uh, right in the middle of the complexity of this battle. And we were afraid because we didn't feel fully prepared. Um, but I think for them to have stepped out of this entire process and not comment uh, is an indication of the contradictions that are being held in public opinion in India right now. Uh, because on the one hand, uh, they have the pressures of a large majority of their, uh, of their party members. And this is not just the BJP is just the front. There is all the other Hindu fundamentalist groups like the RSS, the VHP, the Bajrangal, <clears throat> and all the local groups in different states. Um, that are that believe in this ideology, um, they have to. They cannot openly support this cause because they expected a backlash from those sections um, of their supporters. But at the same time, neither could they go directly against us because there was a lot of 
important and elite public opinion that supported us, um, as, as we now know from the Supreme Court decision. But there was support from uh, the media. There was support from, you know, big Bollywood stars. There was support from corporates who also they cannot take on. Um, so I think they were left in this bind, um, which they resolved for themselves by uh, not, not stepping in at all. But this judgment has reprimanded very clearly that decision of the government um, and has said, how could you uh, not have a say in this and that you were abstaining from your responsibility as a government from doing so. And thus the directives, uh, directives that the court has given to the government follow from there. But I would say these are the three sort of main categories of people who have been against us, um, against us in court. Um, and yeah, and all of that comes from a particular paranoia that this is a challenge to what they believe is a very fabric of Indian society. And we have shown over and over again in court and outside of court um, that Yes, it is a challenge to the fabric of Indian society. And yes, we are reimagining another version of what this society is to be in the future. And we're going to go ahead and do so, basically. right? Um, and this judgment uh, in its broadness also helps us expand that challenge, that reimagining of Indian society, not just from the perspective of queerness, but from, um, but from all perspectives across the board to do with all kinds of political standpoints. Um, so, yeah, I think these are the three main groups, I would say. Pony, as, as has been mentioned, um, Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code, which criminalized gay sex, uh, dates back to the colonial era. And now, mm -hmm. um, more than 70 years after so-called Indian independence, it's been overturned, finally. Over those seven decades, there have been movements and people who fought against that, were criminalized because of Section 377, many of whom suffered, all of whom who suffered, actually. There are many names to, to remember. Uh, one name that has been highlighted is Professor Ramchandra Siras of Aligarh Muslim University, who's now passed away, but he was, he was charged under this act. Um, his case became somewhat famous for a variety of reasons, but one was because there was a, a beautiful film made about his situation called mm -hmm. Aligar several years ago. There are a lot of names and movements to mention, but are there a few that come to mind for you? Because as, as you expressed your, um, I mean, you, you said you had no words to talk about how you felt about what this decision meant, because that's how powerful it was. But uh, do, you, do you have any um, individuals or movements that come to mind uh, who, who, as a result of yeah. Section 377, suffered and, and were oppressed? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard to enumerate, right, in that sense, uh, because there's just so many, so many people. Um, uh, but I think one of the things that has marked uh, all of our time in, um, in the movement uh, has been all the um, activist queer people we have lost to suicide. Um, and so today we had posters out about, for example, Samila, um, who uh, was with us uh, till the early 2000s, who was um, one of the first um, transgender and uh, queer uh, um, and sometimes a sex worker a political thinker and activist and friend and lover uh, to uh, many people. Um, and uh, she took her own life 
And uh, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that among the range of factors that weighed her down so much that she decided to no longer be on this earth, uh, this law was one of them. Um, and then there are others, and her, her friend Kajal, who also uh, passed away soon after, uh, who was also transgendered and who ha was under the same pressures, and she was also HIV positive uh, and wasn't able to get access to uh, the care that she needed. Um, and there are other uh, trans men, uh, much less well-known, but, uh, but were comrades and colleagues and friends of ours, um, like Deepu, who used to live in Bangalore, who left um, uh, left his village in Kerala and ran away to Bangalore because he saw himself as a man and couldn't live as such uh, where he was from. And after many years of struggling as much as he possibly could uh, to find a job, to just sort of live in a basic fundamental way, he also um, took his own life. Um, and um, as did Professor Siras, and, um, and then, of course, for many of us, one of the people who were with us as one of the lawyers who worked on this case, um, as well as a thinker and um, a friend and my lover of many years, uh, Priya Tangaraja, who is from Sri Lanka but studied in India for many years and was an integral part of various queer organizations, including Voices Against 377, um, and with me wrote a large number of pieces documenting how this law affects the life of queer women and trans men, groups that are often left out of many discourses, even amongst us left out. We uh, together put those stories on record. And of course, she had uh, numerous pressures um, that uh, led her to the division of suicide as well. But um, today we remember her and we remember um, the oppressions that were upon her also for being a queer person. Um, apart from this, I think there is violence that is ev everyday life for many, many, many people. Um, and amongst them, those who practice sex in public were always the worst affected. And they had sex in public either because they were sex workers or and or because they didn't have any other space to go to, um, given the oppression of the law that extends into their homes, their private spheres, etc. And these people were uh, brutalized um, and regularly on a daily basis, uh, both by law enforcement, by the police, as well as um, local sort of goons and so on. And when I worked at the Alternative Law Forum, um, for many years, this was one of this was the kind of cases we saw every single day, and it was just sort of almost normalized as a thing that happens um, with uh, queer or lesbian women. Um, there it has been um, uh, so many instances of uh, people committing suicide and leaving notes behind. Uh, one couple I remember. Uh, who burnt themselves alive together in Chennai. Uh, now, I think it was in the mid-2000s sometime. Um, and they left a note saying, this world won't let us be together, so we're leaving this world so we can be together. Um, so, I, and uh, I think what happens to those who have sex in public is not um, different from the plight of sex workers uh, in the country every day. And I should mention this here, that one of the other significant movements 
that put sexuality on the map for us was the sex worker struggle that began um, in the late 80s, early 90s in the country, and has been a very strong voice. Um, and some of those sex workers are also queer people and go through everyday violence. And all of this is outside of violence that is perpetrated upon us through the missionaries of mental health, for example. It is still very common to try to cure homosexuality, even in acclaimed mental health institutions in the country, by electric shock therapy. Um, and this is also not including the imprisonment and the violence that happens to people within the home. So the, one of the first pieces that Priya Tangaraja and I wrote, Queer Women in the Law in India, documents over and over again the ways in which queer women were put under house arrest, basically not allowed to leave their home by their families, and in order to get them married forcefully, during which it wasn't just, three, I mean, often it's harder to use 377 when it comes to queer women, and there's so many complexities to that battle, but a whole range of laws to do with kidnapping, blackmail, um, public indecency, etc., were used against uh, these people, or even there were a couple against one person and the couple against the other. So parents would take their own child and make her file the case against her own lover, saying that this person kidnapped her, um, or even, you know. Um, so I, I, I think today we, we remember all of those people, and some of them we wish were with us to see this day, uh, because this could not have happened without them, and perhaps they may not have died. Um, if he had seen this day earlier, maybe. Um, and so I think, like, uh, I'm sure there are many sort of individual names that I'm missing because there are too many. Um, but it's just useful to know that um, along with creativity and community building and all of this stuff, one of the things that has been very normalized for us as queer activists is to lose people. Um, and many of us are now, you know, I'm in my 30s and I have already lost um, so many people um, to suicide or to having been uh, killed by somebody else in the name of their sexuality or gender identity. And this is just part of, this, this has been part of our journey so far. Um, and we remember all of them today. Pony, to wrap this up, uh, I just want to ask you about the upcoming challenges and I'm sure the seeds for, for fighting those other challenges, and, and by that I don't mean legal challenges, I mean the grassroots organizing to, to achieve justice and dignity for, for queer folks. And as you've already said, that struggle is, is linked to justice and dignity for, for all oppressed people in the Indian state. So, so what are the, the main preoccupations and organizing that we can foresee in the coming months and years <laughs> in the Indian state mm -hmm. that are rooted in the struggles of, of queer people? Um, yeah, first of all, I think we're all having to remind ourselves to just take a breath and celebrate, you know, at least give ourselves a few days. So even yesterday, I had already sort of begun to think of the next step. So just to put that on record as well, that as activists, um, it's not very often in life that we get to live days like this and that it's okay for us to um, take take the moment in. Um, and so, I mean, I, for one, am definitely trying hard to do that. Um, but in terms of what the future holds, um, I think there's a couple of different, couple of different ways to think about it. 
Um, first of all, are the differences in priorities that are going to emerge from within the queer movement. Um, I think this sort of demand for um, civil rights of marriage, adoption, etc., uh, gets assumed as the obvious next step among certain sections, large sections of the queer movement, as well as in the mainstream media, etc. And some of us have been sort of uh, sitting on and brewing a response to that for many years because we know it was coming. And uh, we're we will now slowly begin to articulate that it's not so much about um, asking for civil rights or not, but it's about how we ask for it. Um, and yesterday when I was speaking with um, Lata Mani, who is another um, uh, 70s, 80s generation feminist and queer person and scholar, she was saying, you know, like people should get married if they want to. But the thing is, we live in a country where people are being ruthlessly murdered for falling in love and marrying across caste and gender, caste and religion. So in that context, uh, if we have that space to ask for civil rights, um, we should create a political language and a demand which um, where people who are heterosexual and who are making non-normative decisions can emulate uh, how we do things. Um, and that then means that we do the work of articulating that, yes, we also have the right to structure our lives in any way that we may choose, but we ask for that right without falling into the normativities of uh, marriage, private property, uh, kin, family, caste, etc. So that's a big challenge that lays ahead of us, both within the movement as well as how we're going to speak about this in the public sphere. Um, I'm both afraid and excited for this. Um, the second thing that has already been underway is uh, to add, um, add uh, sexuality to the non-discrimination clause within the Constitution. Um, right now, it consists of um, uh, religion, caste, sex, etc., but to add the term sexuality to it, to put in place a constitutional sort of guarantee of non-discrimination. And people have been doing the research um, already for many, many years in order to make that argument. Um, and I think the sort of third thing, which I think is very exciting for me, um, is that we are living in a context where just in the past few days, 10 human rights activists, lawyers, thinkers, writers, have been harassed, arrested, placed under house arrest, have been called uh, urban nuxels, they're calling all of us nowadays. Um, and they are going through this right now. And many of us are in our own many different ways part of the campaigns to say that this is not okay and to fight for fundamental democratic rights to dissent. Um, and so I hope that this moment of the judgment um, bring, gives us the space to add creatively and positively to the conversations of how we can combat fascism in the Indian nation state right now. Um, and I think the, there are at least two ways by which I can see the potential for that from a queer perspective. Uh, one way is to highlight um, this battle and the judgment and how it reinstates um, legal and constitutional rights and moralities. Um, but the other way is to point out that with this victory, we have shown that Indian society isn't structured uh, by the norms of uh, religion, caste, gender, patriarchy, heteronormativity in the way that the right wing would like to believe. Uh, the way in which they 
articulate a broad public perspective for the nation state of India being a Hindu country is based on the unit of the family. Um, and us as queer people have always stood as a challenge to that. Um, and this decriminalization gives us more space to say that loudly and proudly, to not just say we're queer, but we are queer, and yes, we are a challenge to the institution of family in the, in the way that we understand it, and how we can use that space um, to make the connection between um, um, uh, fascism and right-wing Hindu fundamentalism basing itself on oppressions of all of us uh, within private and public realms and everything in between and in spaces where that collapses. Um, and we have the potential to do that. And we have said this in our writing for a long time. Um, I think we now have the opportunity to translate that into um, um, into sort of efficient political strategy and um, activist language, et cetera. And I think all social movements and everyone fighting for social justice uh, in the Indian nation state right now um, have uh, something to gain from that. Um, and then the last thing I want to say is that this victory doesn't just remain constricted to the Indian nation state. Uh, the law itself is shared by most countries that were erstwhile British colonies. Um, so our connections go to um, Trinidad and Tobago, um, all the other South Asian countries, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, um, where this law yet, is yet to be uh, changed still. And the way the oppression, the shape that this oppression takes in Burma and Bhutan um, and various other Caribbean nation states that were part of uh, the British Empire, um, and various countries um, in uh, the African continent that are also erstwhile British colonies that share this uh, this colonial law with us. And I really hope, I really, really hope that um, this judgment um, means that we also take the responsibility of working with our fellow queers in these countries to um, to exchange uh, and collaborate on how we may strategize about changing this same law in their respective countries. We've begun doing that to some extent, um, but I think this gives us the space to do it even more. And even if we are not involved directly in any of these other nation states, that they are able to use this judgment to make these arguments in their own respective countries because we are all against the same same legal provision. Um, and so ironically, like the way the, the empire has held us together through its oppressive laws, and hopefully we can use that history to hold each other together in our resistance to those same oppressive laws. Um, so I think these are sort of broad categories of what I think the future could hold for us. Poniara Su, a Tamil queer feminist activist, actively involved in opposing Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code, which is now overturned. Congratulations, um, and thank you for uh, thank you for taking the time to speak with us on No Borders Media. Thank you, thank you so much, Jadi. Thank you. You are listening to a No Borders Media interview with Pony Arasu, a Tamil queer feminist activist involved in the successful struggle to overturn Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code, which criminalized queers in India. No Borders Media, based in Toronto and Montreal, is an autonomous left-wing media network. We share and create content that supports the struggles of communities and resistance with a focus on the self-determination struggles of indigenous peoples, migrants, refugees, and working-class people of color, all in the context of opposition to capitalism and colonialism. 
Some current focuses include migrant justice, resistance to borders, anti-fascism, and anarchism. We're in the early stages of our independent media project. To stay in touch, send us an email at nobordersmedianetwork at gmail.com or look for No Borders Media on Facebook and SoundCloud. Much more to come in the coming weeks and months.